I wonder if you've ever taken what, what might have been quite a bold step in telling someone about Jesus, you know, sharing something of your trust in him, you know, things that really matter, right? You've taken that bold step, but then you get a response from the person that you're speaking to and they say, well, that's nice for you. you know, it's nice that you have something to give you meaning and purpose and significance in life, you know, something like that. It, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not outright opposition, it, it's not outright rejection, it's not a challenge to the truth of what you're, you're talking about, it's just, well, you know, you've got your thing and I've got my thing. You've got your faith, you've got Jesus, you've got God, you've got church, prayer, whatever that is, and I've got, well, I've got my stuff that works for me. You know, I've got friends and family, I've got uh, meditation and yoga, I've got the pub on a Friday night. I've got you know, my, my moral and ethical causes that I'm committed to. Whatever people think is the, their equivalent of your trust in Jesus. You've got, you got your thing, I've got my thing. That might be nice for you, but I don't need that. I don't need Jesus. And so they end up talking about Jesus like it's just a personal preference. You know, like, like your taste in music, right? Like... Yeah, for a lot of people, it's all about Taylor Swift right now. Yeah, maybe you're not aware, maybe you're living, living under a rock, but the whole world and Australia right now is in the grip of Taylor Swift mania. She began her Australian tour this weekend in Melbourne and she's breaking all kinds of world records. It's, it's the, the highest grossing concert tour of all time. And believe me, I know way more about this than I wish I did. But a friend of mine posted on social media recently, he said, he was asking you know, for, for help from the social media hive mind to settle a, an argument between him and his teenage daughters. He said this, he said, in a hundred years time, who will be more well known, Taylor Swift or the Beatles? Now, I'm not gonna ask for a, a survey of, the, of this crowd. I don't know what kind of mixed response we might get, but interestingly, I, you may, you, you may or, or may not know that in, in, in the prime of the Beatles, in their kind of height of their fame, John Lennon, one of the Beatles, famously said, we're bigger than Jesus. That's right, he said, we're bigger than Jesus. Now, just to be clear, I only know about the Beatles because my parents were into them. I wasn't around in the, in the 60s myself. <clears throat> Now, I don't know whether Taylor Swift would make that kind of a claim, we're big, I'm bigger than Jesus, but wherever you land on the kind of Taylor Swift versus the Beatles debate, the comparison with Jesus just doesn't work. It's not about how popular they are or how many followers they have, how many likes they have, how influential or well-known. The truth about Jesus is a truth that you can't ignore, whether you're into that sort of thing or not. And I suspect that, as I say, that most of us in this room kind of get that, you know, we understand that. But when everyone around us just kind of nods and smiles and says, well, that's nice for you, and, and particularly on top of that, when a certain loud portion of our society is telling us that the world is marching towards a future where God is going to be completely irrelevant, and sure, you can have your faith in Jesus, but just keep it to yourself and keep it over to the side. When that's what we're hearing, we can be tempted to think about Jesus in those terms ourselves. That 
faith in Jesus is just a private, personal thing and only relevant for, for my little world. And so to shrink the significance of Jesus for my life, let alone for other people that I might want to talk to him about. Well, I reckon these verses that we've just read in Colossians chapter 1 are a pretty big antidote to that kind of idea, that kind of thinking. See, what we need is what the Colossian Christians of the 2,000 years ago needed as well. We need a bigger Jesus. We need to see Jesus as he really is. And these verses give us that bigger Jesus. And, and you'll, you'll see that the, the passage breaks pretty neatly into two parts, Jesus and everything and Jesus and you. So we're going to look at those now. So firstly, Jesus and everything. Uh, and and, and the, that, so that's verses 15 to 20. And the first part of that, verses 15 to 17, are about how Jesus is supreme over all of creation. And the first thing that verse 15 tells us about Jesus, as it's building this picture of Jesus as supreme over all creation, over everything, is that he is the image of the invisible God. You see that there? The image of the invisible God. That is, well, you can't see God, but if you've seen Jesus, then you have seen God. Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That the man Jesus, who if you were there, you could see and touch and talk to and, and, and hang out with, that he shows us the completeness of God himself. That is an extraordinary claim to make. The, the kind of claim that could likely get you locked up in a loony bin or killed, which of course is exactly what happened to Jesus. They killed him, except he didn't stay dead. And so within a few short years of his humiliating and shameful death, people on the other side of the Roman Empire were saying these things about him because they recognised that it was true. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. One of my kids was telling me about a bunch of boys that were going around her school and they were going up to people and they were saying, have you, can you see God? And when the answer is no, they'd say, well, how do you know he exists then? It turns out the arguments of 12-year-old boys are not that different from the arguments of people who write books and get paid lots of money, atheist kind of writers, and, and get popular for it. You know, if you can't see God, how do you know he exists? And you might have various different answers to that question, but the most important answer is Jesus. We can know about God because of Jesus. If you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen God. And he doesn't mean, you know, if you've seen you know, what colour eyes he has or, or how tall he is. Even if we haven't laid eyes on Jesus personally, which, you know, presuming none of us have, Jesus shows us the very nature and character of God. He shows us what God is like. This is who God is. And we can know him because we know what he did and what he said. People who were there wrote it down for us. God has broken into our world, in history, in the man Jesus. We can know God because we can know him. He's the image of the invisible God. But that expression, the image of the invisible God, also means that he is the perfect human. You might remember in Genesis chapter 1, the first uh, chapter of the Bible, God said, the climax of creation, he said, let us make man 
in our image. Humanity was made in the image of God. The pinnacle of God's creation, we were made to represent God in our rule over the rest of creation. But we tried to do that with God out of the picture and put ourselves in place of God, which is not how God meant it to be. And so while we still bear the image of God, it's corrupted by sin, like a cracked mirror, a distorted image, but not Jesus. Jesus is the perfect image of God, the perfect human. Or to put it another way, Jesus is what humanity was made to be, what humanity was made for, to rule over all creation. Which brings us to the next bit in verse 15 still. It says next that he is firstborn over all creation. Now, I think we read firstborn and we can find that a little bit confusing because we think it means born first in creation, like Jesus is part of creation, just the first part of creation, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Jesus is part of creation, just the first part. Is that what this is saying? Are the Jehovah's Witnesses right? No, it's, it's not saying that. Because firstborn simply means the heir, the one who will inherit the rule, the, 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 right, the throne, the right to rule. Because when it comes to kings and rulers, right, the, the one who inherits the throne is usually the, the firstborn. So Prince William will inherit the throne from his father, King Charles. But firstborn, sorry, but, but born first is not always, sorry, the firstborn is not always born first. Let me give an example from this from the, from the Bible. So uh, Jacob and Esau, right? Esau was born first. But Jacob inherited the right of the firstborn. He inherited the rank and the status of the firstborn. So firstborn is not about being born first. It's a title for the highest in rank who will rule. So this is saying that Jesus is the one who, will, who is the rightful ruler over all creation. But there's more. Verse 16 and 17 tells us that he is the very reason that creation exists. Have a look at verse 16 and 17 with me. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You hear that? Isn't that remarkable? In him, through him, for him, everything without exception owes its existence to him. So, for example, when we read in the very first sentence of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that was the Son. It was created through him. He is the agent of creation. And he is the one who, who holds it together. He is the sustainer of creation. He keeps the universe going. It's not like the universe is like a wind-up toy that you start at the beginning and then just let it go. No, Jesus keeps things going. He holds it together. He's the agent, the sustainer, the purpose of creation. Everything exists for him. I mean, this is, it's hard to get your head around, right? It completely turns our me-centred understanding of the world upside down. The universe exists for Jesus. The world exists for Jesus. I exist for Jesus. 
as, as I read this, and I, I find myself thinking, you know how the sun is the centre of our solar system and everything else kind of orbits around the sun? I find myself picturing Jesus as being like the, the gravitational centre of the you know, entire universe. All in our, in our solar system, all of life depends on the sun, right? Even the planets that don't have life, their, their existence is entirely with reference to the sun. You know, whether they're hot or cold, the, the, the gravity of the sun is what keeps us together, holds us in orbit. If you remove the sun, our entire solar system would just cease to be. We just drift off into cold, dark emptiness. And there's a certain rightness with having the sun at the centre, radiating, radiating its heat and light and, and keeping us together with its gravity. If you could somehow you know, put the sun in a box and deny its existence, we might survive for a little while with artificial light and heat, but we still know, right, that's not, that wouldn't be right, that wouldn't be the way that it's meant to be. The sun belongs at the centre. And it's the same with Jesus, the Son, S-O-N. Everything is right with the universe when Jesus is at the centre. Not that you know, I can change that. I can't take Jesus out any more than I can remove the sun from our solar system. But the question is, have I got my universal astronomy right? You know, Jesus is not a moon that orbits around me. I exist for him. And I wonder if kind of thinking about Jesus in those terms challenges some of the ways that we, we, we think and talk about my spiritual life. You know, sometimes we talk about my spiritual life as if it's just a particular aspect of my life. You know, I've got my, my work life, my family life, my social life and so on, and my spiritual life. And, and my spiritual life is just part of that. So I've got my, my God stuff and Jesus and church and prayer and the Bible and that sort of thing. That's part of it. But then I've got all those other aspects of life and I need to kind of keep them in balance, as we like to say somehow. That doesn't really fit with this Jesus. Every aspect of my life exists for Jesus, exists with reference to Jesus. And so, of course, this Jesus must influence all my decisions all my choices, all my behaviour in my work life, in my family life, in my social life and my, my spare time. Because Jesus is supreme over everything, over all creation. And that is true whether we acknowledge it or not. But clearly there's a problem. And we see that problem kind of unstated in this passage because that's the way it's meant to be. But in reality, all creation doesn't recognise Jesus as supreme. If you look just up a bit, a few verses into last week's passage in verse 13, you remember we were told that there is such a thing as the dominion of darkness, the, the rule of darkness. But we've just been told that Jesus is the ruler, the rightful ruler over every power and dominion. And yet in some way it seems that the creation is resisting the supremacy of Jesus, to the point where, just a few years before Paul was writing these words, this Jesus who we've just been talking about was hanging dead on a cross. The combined hostility of visible and invisible powers rose up in rebellion against him. 
the visible human authorities, the invisible spiritual powers, had killed the author of life. Where was his supremacy now? It's his creation in every way possible. It's almost inconceivable that he should not be recognised by his creatures. And yet that's exactly what happened. And this brings us to the second statement about Jesus' supremacy in these first five verses, that he is also supreme over the new creation. Check out the second half of verse 18 with me, where we get the word firstborn again. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And again down in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See, something needed to happen in order to reconcile the universe to its rightful ruler, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And that's something that needed to happen, we're told, is his death, his bloodshed on the cross, and his resurrection, that he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Jesus died as the price for a, rebe- for, for a rebellious humanity, and he rose from the dead as the founder of a new humanity and initiated the beginning of a new creation. And when he did that, we're told, he was setting things right in the universe, reconciling everything back to himself and the way things should be. Heaven on earth, everything. Starting with a new humanity who will also rise from the dead with Jesus as our head, supreme over everything, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's Jesus and everything. Supreme over creation and supreme over new creation and this is where we get to jesus and you this is where we fit into all of this in verses 21 to 23 have a listen to what it says about where we stood where where you stood in relation to all of this verse 21 once you were alienated from god and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior That's pretty clear, right? And pretty confronting. Enemies of God, alienated from him, evil behaviour. I wonder how you feel about this description of yourself apart from Jesus, of every person apart from Jesus. Especially, again, when everyone around us keeps saying something completely different, keeps saying that, no, actually, we're basically good. It's just maybe the circumstances that sometimes make us do bad things. That's clearly not how God sees it. And we could go into statistics and history and social sciences. We live in in the wealthiest and safest part of the world and and time in history. And yet we still all need to lock our doors. And we increasingly find that we need to guard and protect ourselves against each other. And so we build safety mechanisms against each other into our society, into every aspect of life. We could talk about all those things. But when it comes down to it, This is what God says. This is what the Jesus who reveals God to us says about us. You can't be a Christian without acknowledging that apart from Jesus, you stand on the wrong side of God. Alienated from him, enemies with God, and with behaviour that matches that. 
But do you see what Jesus has done for you? Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is why the message of Jesus is called good news, because it is good news. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Reconciliation is always a good thing. It's not always easy, but it's always good. When, when friends have been fighting, when they get back together, reconcile, that's a good thing. When a marriage that's on the rocks somehow manages to patch things up, that's never easy. That's a good thing. And even in our own country here, with the relationship between Indigenous Australians and, and later settlers of the, of the, the land, we know how, what a difficult and ongoing thing reconciliation is. Reconciliation is hard. But God has reconciled us to himself completely and perfectly through Jesus. All the fault was on our side and all the cost was on his side. And Jesus didn't assert his supremacy over us with a boot, you know, to, to get us back into line, to stomp on our rebellion. He did it by dying for us, to make peace with us. He reconciled us to himself with his own blood. And because of that, we're told, we will stand before him wholly in his sight. He does not see what we were. He sees us as clean, without blemish, and free from accusation. So there's no one who can say to you, but hang on, weren't you one of the enemies? And look at your evil behaviour. Jesus has taken the power away from that accuser. He's supreme over anyone who would accuse us and he's answered their accusation with his own death. Jesus will say, no, he's one of mine. No, she's one of mine. They are washed clean and no one may accuse them. That's the Jesus who is at the centre of the universe, supreme over everything and no one can deny his word. What does this Jesus require of us or simply to trust him and to keep trusting him that's what it says in verse 23 if you continue in your faith established and firm not moving from the hope held out in the gospel just keep trusting jesus i mean that should be a no-brainer given the jesus that we've just been hearing about right this jesus who these verses talk about trusting this jesus should be a no-brainer what, who he is, what he's done for us. Like knowing that we need the sun to survive, it should be natural. But God knows that somehow our universal astronomy can get out of alignment, that we can lose sight of the sun. And so we need to be established and firm in our trust in him so that we keep trusting in him and so that we keep our eyes fixed on what he has promised for the future and not let anyone turn us away from that, from him. Because there will be things, people, ideas, that try to turn us away from this Jesus. Voices that say, we well, don't need this, or it's irrelevant. Or that say, you don't deserve it, or it's not enough. Or that say, you will find fulfilment elsewhere. Who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust those voices? Or are you going to trust this Jesus? 
The Jesus that we meet in these verses is a real wake-up call, right? Truly remarkable. It's a reminder that we need a bigger Jesus. And whether you're into Taylor Swift or or the Beatles or, or neither, this is a massive challenge to what seems like a buffet of lifestyle choices that are out there. You know, just pick and choose whatever you think will work for you. This turns everything on its head and says, no, who you are in relation to him is what matters more than anything else. And knowing that should then affect every aspect of your life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you will open our eyes and the eyes of our hearts to see this Jesus all the more clearly. Father, you know our tendency to perhaps to be distracted away from uh, understanding who the, the, the wonder and the, and the glory and the beauty of who he really is. And, and so we ask, Father, that you will refocus our attention onto him and encourage us with who he really is and what he has done for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.